Attention, attention please, stand by for another episode of When Humanists Attack. Hi everybody, welcome to When Humanists Attack. Uh, this is another one of our Who Are You and Why Should Anybody Listen to You series. My name is Vincent Downing. I am your very own self-proclaimed internet expert. And I am introducing Chris West. First of all, uh, who are you and why should anybody listen? I ask myself that every morning when I get out of bed. I... I am a 50-something-year-old white guy, uh, Anglo-Judaic, as uh, we, we say in New York City. I grew up uh, middle class uh, in a, th- a family that was tied to the theatrical business in New York City. My dad worked on Broadway as an electrician. My brother still does that type of work in cable, and uh, I did it myself for a number of years. I have uh, two bachelor's degrees. Uh, of, of, I got a bachelor's degree in, in cultural anthropology uh, when I was right out of high school, which I did absolutely nothing with. After that, I went out and did what a lot of millennials did, which is just, you know, lived in an apartment and made enough money to uh, exist at the level I was interested in living at, not trying to put anything away, not trying to make a family or build any kind of assets. And then I ran into you through a mutual friend. We started hanging out and doing cool and interesting stuff, including spending uh, probably uh, way too much time playing Dungeons and Dragons. It's now turned into LARPing, which is live action role playing, which is what a lot of my, uh, my kids and my kids' friends do, um, which also was an amazing journey, by the way, which I never would have, have given up, given an opportunity, watching two brains develop in front of you and, and like being involved in that. That's so friggin' cool. How cool is that? That's what where I come from. Uh, why should anybody listen to me? The entertainment value, I think, is the best uh, reason why someone should listen to me. Because I think I have interesting and funny shit to say. I don't think that my opinion matters more than anyone else. I don't think I'm necessarily writer than anyone else. Uh, although I like to kid myself that I think I'm as right as most people. I can have all the foibles and issues that most people have, you know, stuff like that. And about when was it that we ran into each other? We ran into each other when I was 22 years old, 23, so uh, 1992. You were uh, interested. Oh, no, a little early, sorry, 88. 88 is when we first met. Just an aside, I just remembered, because uh, if I was 22, uh, 23, it was not 1990. And we were both interested in esoterica at the time. Wasn't it runes, yeah. Kabbalah? All similar? kinds of stuff. Part of my journey in life from the time I was very young was, who am I and why are we here? I mean, the great philosopher's questions, right? I started out asking these questions of the people around me. Uh, firstly, by asking to go to church with friends of mine, because my parents were completely atheistic. We did Thanksgiving, we did Christmas, but only the secular part of Christmas, uh, New Year's. Uh, we didn't celebrate anything religious. We n- I never went to a religious service with my parents, ever. And when I was like five or six, I started wondering why my friends weren't hanging around on Sunday. And they're like, well, we're in church. I was like, well, what's church? And of course, I knew what God was and I knew what a church was, but I didn't know what the hell was going on there. So I asked my best friend at the time to 
asked his parents if they could drag me along. And they were going to the most boring Southern Baptist church you could imagine. And there was this huge set of cables that brought a microphone down and dropped the microphone right in front of this gray, 60-something, staunch-looking guy who sat there and yelled at everyone for an hour. But then we got to go downstairs and hang out in the playroom and be given a book on basically uh, the Scout Handbook, but for Jesus. I think I went like four or five times before it was just so ridiculous I wasn't interested anymore. Once my friend Guy started saying, I'm getting a lot of sex from all of these girls that I'm hanging out with, he was like, come roller skating and we can go on the back and, and, and play have play sex games with girls. I was like, well, okay, now that's a reason to go to church. I can, I can certainly you know get behind that as a reason to go to church. And then we moved to New York City. My parents got sp split up. And uh, I followed a couple of other Christian things at a, a housekeeper my father hired who was a Jehovah's Witness. And I still have the Bible that she gave me, although I never, ever went to a witness hall or any gatherings. And in college, I got into Wicca. And when I came out of college is when you and I started hanging out. And I, at the time, I was pretty much doing pagan stuff. Although I was starting to get interested in runes, you introduced me to the whole Thelemic thing and this uh, mystical Kabbalah stuff. And the way that I describe it is I spent probably 20 years of my life looking really hard for any evidence of the supernatural that I felt was real evidence. I mean, really hard. I mean, I was dancing for hours, drunk on rum, chanting to your Rubens. I was meditating and doing runic stuff and we were doing these initiations and all, and nothing that ever happened was not, it was something that I would say hands down was a supernatural effect. And I think if I'm gonna see a supernatural effect, after exposing myself to the the bleeding edge of uh, of belief and and the cutting edge of of weird occult stuff, I should see something. And I remember very clearly you said to me that one day the, that the group that we were hanging out with at the time were trying to be ordinary people living extraordinary lives, and it ended up being just extraordinary people living terribly ordinary lives. And I thought that was a beautiful way of putting it because you look at this it's as a seeker of, of supernatural things, of otherworldly interactions with the vibrations in my brain, which is what everybody thought was going on. You vibrate this, and you're cutting into a key, and the world is, the universe is really a machine, and if you have the right vibration, you're turning this key, and that's making shit happen, blah, blah, blah. In the end... It was really just a bunch of overweight, middle-aged people smoking cigarettes and hanging out on a Saturday, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's just, I don't think we were actually touching anything supernatural. And after you and I did the whole Atota thing, which we can talk about, I just decided that there was not enough evidence to warrant my belief. I certainly remember you being very open-minded about the existence of for lack of a better word, the supernatural. And we did spend a fair amount of time discussing it during those years. I, I've had certain paranormal experiences that I can't explain according to the current scientific paradigm, but I still have never taken those as myself as uh, evidence of anything quote unquote supernatural. The quote, if I'm remembering it correctly, we got that from my mom. And it was when she said to us that day that she was 
surrounded by people who were trying to live ordinary lives in extraordinary ways and living extraordinary lives in very ordinary ways. Yeah. yeah. She, she didn't see any way out. You know, that was his, that <laughs> she was hoping for something else too. Yeah. And, uh, and never got any, uh, any further than that. Um, One of the things I remember very clearly about uh, the Ordo Templi Orientis and other groups, including Christianity, is, is how clear they are about us being special, right? How we matter how God gives a damn about where I put my hands in my pants, outside my pants, all that stuff. That, that the way that I vibrate the, the uh, Liber All is going to get me insight into a cachet of information that is just on the other side of this veil that, you know, exists. I want to say, even to this day, I'm completely open to a supernatural experience. I would be completely interested in... in being in a room where someone said that's supernatural and to use the 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 skeptic in me now to to try to find out if i'd agree there's a lot in there now that wasn't there like the whole arthur c clark thing that any significantly advanced society is indistinguishable from magic to that society that's not as advanced as that that would have to be put into the equation at this point and is that then supernatural i'd have to say no how does it ken ham from the answers in genesis says from molecules to men yeah that's me i'm a molecules to men although i wouldn't say molecules to men i'd say molecules to people but then again i don't believe that the book of genesis is the absolute and true word of the all of great creator of the universe so Ken and I are going to disagree about that particular point. Uh, so spoiler <laughs> alert, I just wanted to tell our audience that I find you worth listening to on a number of different fronts. I remember you being very involved in more than philosophy and esoterica and things of that nature. Uh, we managed to get involved in, for example, some very interesting activist stuff during the 90s with uh, a Temple of the Apotheosis, but also other organizations as well. You're a mechanical engineer. Uh, You've been an activist for as long as I've known you. You're an amateur historian. You're a certified windmill technician. Dutch windmiller. It sort of Dutch windmiller in the Netherlands Netherlands. for the benefit of those who don't know you as well as I do. Why not uh, give us a quick rundown on some of the other reasons that you might be uh, worth Worth listening to? to. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I remember very clearly uh, that you and I and some friends were sitting in the basement apartment that I was living in, in in one of your mom's buildings. And I, I just uh, burst out laughing. And you were like, what are you, what are you laughing at? What are you and I was like, if you could see the shit that's going on inside my head, this is all fucking hilarious pretty much all the time. <laughs> I'm a curious mind uh, and a questioning mind. And I, I find things and people fascinating. I just like 
learning about stuff. Uh, for instance, I married for, a Dutch woman and I moved to the Netherlands in 2000. And one of the things that I ran into there was these ancient Enlightenment era wooden machines, which was the, the first industrial revolution in Europe were these windmills. When I was taking the, the training to become a certified Dutch windmiller, I found out that the technology was actually not invented in Europe. It was, it was imported by the Crusaders from the Far East and the, and the, the Near East. Yeah. In the 1300s, they started building these these windmills for first just for grain. There are 50 different industrial applications for windmills. I was living in the Netherlands. I was going to be there for a long time. I ended up living there for 10 years. I'm raising kids, stay-at-home dad. My wife was able to take off one day a week and get paid for 90%. So working 80%, paid 90% because of a Dutch program to make sure that there was a good balance between work and family life. <clears throat> so on Wednesdays and Saturdays, I would be completely free. And on Saturdays, I would go every weekend to a windmill in Harlem, which was built in 1776, replaced a windmill that had been there since 1640. That was a sawmill. Um, and of course, the Dutch are well known for having these huge trading fleets in sure. the, uh, the 13, 14, 15s, all the way up to the 1700s. And they needed wood for that. But there was no wood there because they had already denuded the entire country. So they were importing wood from uh, Scandinavia, uh, the Hanseatic League. A number of the cities in the Netherlands were part of the Hanseatic League. Um, and they brought also wood down from Switzerland, down the Rhine. And so I learned about and became certified as a Dutch windmiller. And I have a degree in mechanical engineering that I took while I was in the Netherlands. I'm also an amateur historian. I just love learning about history, love learning about what was going on. When we go on a vacation, our family together, uh, I'm interested not in the natural beauty of things, or not that I don't appreciate natural beauty. I'm interested in the roots of humanity. Um, we go to Belize, and I'm interested in the Maya ruins. Uh, we go to Malta, and I'm interested in the oldest buildings in Europe, which are from 3200 B.C., we go uh, to the Netherlands, and I'm interested in what, what's old there. And the older, the better, as far as I'm concerned. If we can trace back the roots of some of this stuff and start understanding where we come from as, as, a, as a species, mm -hmm. then maybe we can know a little more about where we might be going. And on top of all this, I have a very, very strong sense of morality, and always have. I know what I think is right and wrong. It's not based on something written in a book. It's very much based on what I now know is humanist values. What, it, what, is, it, what decreases harm for the most people? What increases access to healthcare and education and the things that I think are, are important for a free society to operate? Uh, and what were those things in uh, Florence in the 1300s? And what were those things in uh, Rome in 200? And what were those things in Egypt in mm. you know 3000 BC? That's an interesting arc to watch and gives us an idea of where we're going. A lot of people would look today around and they'd say, shit, I know life is not good. And I would say, well, I don't know. If we look at all the metrics right now, there are fewer people living in poverty yeah. than ever before. There are more people with educations than ever before. Are we having society, societal blowback? Are there people who don't want these changes and will do everything they can to stop them in what they think is the name of some kind of deity? Yes. But when someone stands up in front of me and says, 
um, I'm in contact and know exactly what this deity wants, and I'm going to hurt someone in the name of that deity. I I I can't stand that. I yeah. just look at that and say, well, first of all, that's hubris, right? How the heck do you think that you know what the yeah. creator, if, as you put it, of all things might want? And if he's really or she is really all that powerful, why do they need you to do something about it? I mean, <laughs> come on. That's a, a ridiculous thing. If, if I insult God, if God wants to do something about it, then God should come down and tell me himself or herself and not have some proxy person uh, do that. I've, I've done a lot of things uh, and continue. I'm an amateur blacksmith. I'm getting into hand uh -huh. uh, woodworking now. Um, I'm a volunteer for the Recovering for Religion. I run a support group here in Vermont, um, which is an organization that I am a, a huge supporter of. It's a place where people who are on some part of their journey from being a believer to being an atheist, um, and they're in need of some kind of support or resources. And I put myself out there as a person who can point them in the direction of resources. I am not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a counselor. I just have ideas and thoughts and resources that I can point people towards. And sometimes that helps. And hopefully when I help someone in, on that journey, then I make another person who is not basing their decisions on what I consider to be pretty kooky stuff. And I think that's better for all of us. And if I can impart that to someone, then it's maybe worth listening to me. But if you're, but if you don't walk away from a conversation with me, with that as what you th are thinking, then maybe don't listen to me. You're right now in the process of rebuilding a house yep. in Vermont. Uh, we've been discussing different ideas for where to go with. Uh, uh, energy efficient housing in the future. Um, and you've studied the, the Bible, uh, uh, yep. as a, a scholar, not as a, from a theological. Oh yes. No. Well, and study is a strong um, word, but I have followed a number of, uh, of courses, uh, mostly by Bart Ehrman, which I highly recommend. The great course is a good way to get access to that. But I figure if I'm going to live in a society, even though I'm not a believer myself, I'm surrounded by people who believe and sometimes they feel it necessary to regurgitate their belief all over me and if I'm they're going to do that then I should be able to at least have some basic knowledge about it to be able to counter what they're saying. If I were to live in a society that was more of a Muslim society I would know the Quran more than I do the, the Bible but because I live here the Bible is what I, and, and biblical references are what I run into all the time. I opened a box for a, a lift, a sheetrock lift that I bought for the house that I'm renovating. And on the inside of the front page, the owner of that company decided it was necessary to proselytize. And I was like, <laughs> even here, we find, I don't know if you guys know the David Attenborough quote, even here, we find life. No, even here, we find a, a pompous theist who thinks it's necessary to to proselytize, I think proselytizing is is really a sin. Um, uh, I, well, I, now wait a minute, hold on. I'm I'm going to break <laughs> in. I'm going to break in. We're looking to proselytize humanism and other skills here at when humanists attack. What's the difference between what we're doing 
and what a theist would be doing. When a theist is trying to convince you of a worldview, what they're doing is they're making huge assumptions about the nature of the way things are. When we're talking about spreading the word and talking about humanism as an alternative to living a good life without a God, which is the the catchphrase for them, what we're talking about is not a not a, a, a worldview that has no scientific ba- basis, right, or that doesn't have evidence behind it. Uh, when mm-hmm. we talk about social justice, we can sit down with social scientists and we can say there is a basis for the inequity in society and working towards uh, equitable society is a goal that helps us all. And that's a humanist goal. Um, it's not not a Christian goal. There are plenty of Christians who believe that as well. And I would be for working towards that type of goal with them on that one thing. But I'm not proselytizing. I'm not trying, although I'm, I'm talking about what I believe, and uh, but it's not the same. My own take on the difference between what we're doing and what a theist would be doing is that a theist enters into a conversation about their beliefs with anybody with the idea that no matter who that person is, should believe what they believe. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we're not assuming that every single person on the face of the earth should be a self-identified humanist in order for things to be good. I mean, I understand that that we're saying it's a big world with room for different kinds of people. Absolutely. I personally would prefer that everyone was atheistic and that would be a a good thing in general. But I I don't insist that everyone believe what I believe. I think that that's foolhardy. I also think that it would become a a rather uninteresting kind of a place if everybody believed exactly what I believe. As a person who wants all kinds of diversity and I want to protect that diversity, I I would agree with you on the proselytizing thing. However, when we look at the history of colonialism in the you know the last 400 years 500 years i think what we find is that that the harm of proselytizing for from that religious point of view and from a, a power position is obviously had some serious ramifications for the diversity of language the diversity of of cultural ideas the the, the histories mm-hmm. of a number of these indigenous peoples um there's a a day in which um, when i was in belize i learned about this one priest who took all of the Maya books, hundreds of books, piled them in a square and burned them, destroying, in the name of God, this cultural history. Now, I'm not going to say that the Mayans were right, that blood sacrifice was a good way to go, and, and there were all kinds of things wrong with the Maya culture on the upper levels. But that type of cultural genocide that we have literally three or four books left of Maya script. The rest of them were burned that one day by that one priest in that one square. And I don't think a humanist would do that. And that's why I think the world would be better with humanists. Because I know that there are people out there right now who, given the chance, 
would do that to a lot of books. Although there are things that I want to work on with people who don't believe what I believe, that that secular humanism, I think, is is a, a ve- has very high moral ground. Well, of course, I would agree. Don't you agree and, with me, Vincent? <laughs> and uh, talking of books, let me uh, let, let's hear a bit more about who are some of the thinkers are who've influenced you. Definitely, my parents. Just early on, even though one of them was a manic depressive and the other was an anger junkie, they were both humanists at heart. Mm. Um, When I was four and five, we had in little Berkeley Heights, New Jersey, this very, very white suburban area, about 20 minutes outside of New York City. On the weekend, we would have people of all backgrounds, all races, all sexual orientations hanging out at our house because my parents were in the theater and those were the Mm. people they knew. They knew actors and that was everybody. I would say learning about evolution in my cultural anthropology classes that that, uh, Darwin, although Darwin has theories and I had ideas Mm. at the time which are very much couched in the culture of the time, racist ideas. I do believe that that was the beginning of a huge revolution uh, in thinking. And I think that that Mm -hmm. Darwin was a very important person in that way. I'm a big fan of philosophy, you know, the beginnings of philosophy, Mm -hmm. the questioning who you are and why we're here. So I'd say Plato and Socrates through Plato. Of course, we don't have any actual writings of Socrates. We don't even know that Socrates actually Actually existed. The only thing we know is that Plato used him as... The teacher he could have never existed and was just a creation of, of Plato's um, and at this point as as I learn more the people like Cosimo de Medici who was a banker who helped run Florence but at the same time in the the late 1300s sent mm-hmm. out his minions throughout Europe to rediscover uh, things like Plato's Republic, which had been suppressed by the church by hmm. for almost a thousand years at the time, and reintroduced that knowledge into our world. I mean, that that, that cannot be uh, underestimated how important hmm. that work that he did was, him and his and his sons and, and grandchildren and grandnieces. There were certainly bad things that the Medicis did, but but without them, we would not have had a Renaissance. They created, they in, invented the Renaissance, and and I have a much yeah. deeper appreciation for that. And the thinkers and writers of that time. Modern day, I'd say, of course, all the the modern day philosophers. Bertrand Russell is up there as well. Right now, the things that are influencing me the most are things like uh, Peter Bogosian's uh, Street Epistemology, um, how to have impossible conversations. Um, using the Socratic method. So that's kind of an arc, right? We start with Plato, and we end with Plato. Um, yeah. the, the, the idea that a, a process of asking questions uh, as your main tool for inquiry, uh, that, that it hasn't gotten better. Any examples of your own, as I call it, uh, mental tinkering or metaprogramming? I think that there are certain things that we can do that will help us understand the world and ourselves in the world better, that metaprogramming. Sure. And one of them is is mindfulness meditations, a Vipassana-type mm. meditation. Um, mm. 
my experience with it is that it's not so much what you're thinking about when you're doing the meditation. It's about doing the meditation. There's something deep that's not happening on a conscious level that changes how you interact with your perceptions of the world. The other thing is I'm very into listening to a podcast called You're Not So Smart that goes through the history uh, and what we know about how the brain works so that I can understand how memories are, are created in our brains, why experts are saying eyewitness testimony is way overrated in the federal justice system, um, how I remember something. I mean, I can go back and grab a memory and I can be in that place, in that moment, smelling the smells, all that type of thing. And basically what happens in that moment is that you're following an engram, which is a coded pattern that you then go back and recreate that memory as you're remembering it. And if the engram is wrong, the engrams are based on what you were focusing on when that thing was happening. So if your, your engram of that memory is going to be different than anyone else's mm. in the rooms. If you start knowing how the brain works, you're going to start questioning all kinds of things. I listen to those podcasts all the time. They're hour, hour and a half long. He's, he's talking with experts in the field about how memory works, how the brain works, how consciousness works. Um, the theories of where we, why we think consciousness was a good evolutionary choice for me as a human being, as the carrier forward of this genome that I'm carrying around in my body. Now that we know a lot about how we think, how the brain works, how reality is formed, I think it's, it behooves us to know it, and it behooves us to look at how it works in our own consciousness. Chris, we're, we've been talking about activism, uh, about belonging to various uh, esoteric and similar organizations. Uh, it sounds to me like uh, both of us have staked uh, a claim on some turf that's pretty left of center. Care to tell our audience a bit more about that? Sure. I'm a social democrat. I have always been a social democrat. I believe that government is there to provide services. Uh, I believe that people uh, need to pay taxes to support that. As a part of being a history buff, uh, I uh, learned things about uh, the first writings, uh, which are very available. I was at the University of Chicago, where my son, one of my sons was thinking about going to school, um, and they have a wonderful... Uh, museum there, the Near East Museum, and there they have actual cuneiform tablets that they brought out of Iraq in the 1920s. Um, and one of those documents is a tax document. Uh, so the very earliest cities understood that if you're going to have a division of labor, if everybody isn't going out and hunting for their, their own food, and we're going to have this set up, then we need to come up with a way of taking in assets and redistributing those assets and how we redistribute those assets is really what government is all about and what the different political parties are about no one's saying we can't have any taxes i just believe that we should be paying large amounts of taxes and that money should be going and helping the entire society i also have uh, very strong opinions about form of government i think uh, 
when the United States was forming as a, a government that they put a president in. I think president is a really bad idea. I think the current administration is showing us how dangerous a pseudo-monarch can be, which is basically what the presidency was set up to be. I lived in the Netherlands for 10 years. Uh, when I was in the Netherlands, I became very enamored of the, the parliamentary system. Um, there are a lot of very good things about uh, the parliamentary system, a lot of bad things about a two-party system. The United States does not have two parties. The United States has 150 parties. When you go in to vote, there's the Working Family Party, there's the Conservatives. There's, all of these are separate parties that just they caucus under the same banner. So you can get elected mm. any number of different parties, but you're going to be a Democrat if, you're, if your party caucuses with the Democrats. You're going to be Republican um, for counting under the, those other conditions. In the Netherlands, for instance, uh, they have 150 seats in Parliament. And what you'll have is in order to form a government, they need to make a, a majority in order to create an executive branch to run the government. And that can have two large parties and one or two very small parties that in general never, ever get ministerial positions or secretary positions hmm. within the government, but are then thrust to the fore because they were the gap that filled the hole that needed the, that the larger party needed to form a government. So... Not only am I a social democrat, I'm also a politarianist. Uh, I really believe that the politarian form of government is superior to the one that we have um, oh, here in the wow. United States. Okay. Because of the presidency. Uh, and the presidency is, is way too powerful a position. I think it's interesting to look at France where you have a president and a prime minister. Uh, and how, hmm. how they figure out things. It, it's a very weird hybrid, which was created almost the exact same time the United States was formed. Most of the parliamentary systems in Europe are really from the mid-1800s, about the time of the Civil War. Huh. So that's where I come at. Not only do I come at, I believe, as a humanist, a secular humanist, it behooves me to be a social democrat, because I think it strives for the, greater, uh, the greatest amount of good to the greatest number of people. Um, and that's my opinion, of course. But also, I like, I like to be a student of government to understand uh, that this is not the only way we have to run things. Who no longer affects you? What, what have you changed your mind about? Hmm. How about that? Shall I've changed we... my mind about the existence of supernatural things. I don't think that I'm the center of the universe. I, I think that was the most profound moment that I've ever had in my life. There's a moment, if you've ever learned a foreign language, there's a moment where you understand 30% of the language and you don't understand 70% of the language. And then one night, it'll flip, and suddenly you understand 70% of the language and you don't understand 30% of the language. And that's the kind of moment I had. I was, it was an, a mundane moment, a completely mundane moment. I was just sitting there, and I suddenly realized that there wasn't someone up there looking at me, and that if I died tomorrow, everything would just keep on going on as if I'd never existed. And that was weird. That moment meant that I didn't believe that I was the center of any universe. That, that was like being ripped inside out. Because what I'd believed was that I was important and that what I did, I mean, I could, I could knock on wood and that would in some way affect the fact that the car wasn't starting or pray to God that, that I'd find my keys or any of that kind of stuff. And the second I realized that 
that I'm just a bunch of atoms together that has this particular way of existing where I think all this crap and has nothing to do with how anything ever is going to happen matters. I got very peaceful. I got very calm. And I suddenly felt right with the universe. That I knew what my place was. And it, and it, was, it was beautiful. And weird. Wow. That's a insight in the right direction, certainly. Why did you propose this project back in, uh, well, in May of yep. 2020? 2020, the year yeah. that wasn't. I am at heart an activist. I grew up in the theater. I grew up on the stage. I went to a performing high school in New York City, uh, did opera and singing. I love being in front of a crowd. I get a real rush from mm -hmm. that. I think that we are at one of those pivotal moments in our society. Uh, first of all, I'm alive, right? So I, I have an opportunity now to do something. Before I was alive, I didn't do anything. And after I'm dead, I'm not planning on doing anything. Who knows? Um, so I've got the time now. I, I really only have this precious little, little window to do anything. And I see a real need for people to be out there on their soapbox in the village square saying stuff. This is the new soapbox. And I've always been a soapbox speaker. So I would put it where struggling with the move from a tribal-based civilization to a global-based civilization. Uh, and we're looking to be a part of that conversation if I remember what you had said well, back in May. When we yep. during the that we've got, we think we've got something worth listening to and we want to be a part of the conversation. I think that's, that sums it up in two very succinct sentences. The things that I'd like to say is stay curious. I think that's really the key. It's one of the things that was repeated when I'm learning street epistemology is if you run into someone who, and you're discussing a belief and they start closing down because mm. you're getting too close to something that they consider to be so basic to their understanding of the universe and of themselves that they're starting to shut down. The recommendation that Peter Boghossian gives in that, in that book is make it a learning moment for you get curious about why they think this don't just be out there trying to convince them not to think that. that's really a bad way of getting anywhere because <sighs> why would anyone want to interact with you if you're trying to convert them i'm not trying to convert you what i'm trying to do is to use really straightforward question and answer format to have you investigate the truth claim that you think is behind your belief that's key that when we're talking to someone i'm not trying to convince them not to believe in god really not i'm really talking to them and asking them to convince me that they have looked critically at why they believe what they believe and if they walk Ooh. away from that conversation yeah. completely happy with that and, and they're, they're still staunch believers in whatever they believe, that's okay. I think uh, none of this is going to happen over a conversation. At the very least, it's going to take three or four conversations at, uh, at all 
if there's any going to be any movement at all in someone's belief structure, those types of epiphanies happen, but they're very rare. And I, I want to be part of that process. I want to be out there on the street asking people, why do you believe what you believe? What do you hope to accomplish by posting these videos? I'd like to have fun. I think this is fun. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and I don't want to do something that isn't fun. Oh, yeah, I do stuff that isn't fun. Like when I'm working on the house and, and I got to get this thing built before the end of the day because the guy's coming to bar. That That's not fun. This is fun. Yeah, this is fun. I was looking forward to this. Uh, I was looking forward to this all day. I'm an open book. If people want to get in touch with me and ask me questions or start a conversation, I'm open to that. Uh, you can contact me at whenhumanistattack at gmail.com, uh, and that'll be on the screen as well. Um, and if you think that you would like to interact with Vincenzo or I uh, here at When Humans Attack, we'd be very interested in engaging with you. Um, and we'll be back with interviews from all kinds of people. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. We certainly hope that this has provided you with some insight as to why, well, we think that we're worth listening to. If you like what we're up to while you're at all of this, why not hit subscribe? Why not hit the little bell? And again, I really would uh, urge you to get uh, us on our uh, Discord server called, appropriately enough, When Humanists Attack. Thank you very much. Been a pleasure.